Good singing indeed this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Kings and chapter 4. We'll be there in a moment. I have a couple things I'd like to say before we get into that, and then we'll do some review of what we've talked about to this point in this small series on stewardship principles. I need to welcome some lifelong family friends of ours. Wes and Deanna Dick are here this morning. Wes, you just have to wave. I won't make anybody else. They were friends and have been faithful servants up at the church that I grew up at in Fairfax Baptist Temple in Fairfax, Virginia. Good friends of my mom and dad's, good friends of ours. Um, Deanna's worst decision she ever made was years ago when the church there was looking for somebody to be a graphic designer. And I was on the church staff and they said, Kyle, we're tired of seeing what you design. Would you hire somebody? And so I found that Deanna did that and she came to work at the church and still works at the church. And what a blessing that is. Uh, And then Connor and Caleb are here. They, as twin brothers, were in Jessica's kindergarten class. You ever wonder if you're old, you realize those two boys just graduated college and we're like, we are old. It's like when it hits you. But especially special to us here at Bluegrass is their daughter, Jenneth. Jenneth, I'm going to make you wave. <laughs> Except for this morning's design. I told her I'd give her the out on this one. She did not do these overhead designs. Jenneth does all of our design work here for us. Every Monday afternoon at 1 o'clock, I meet with her by, it used to be Zoom, and then we were told by her brothers who are into cybersecurity, Zoom isn't very safe and secure. So now we use FaceTime, which I'm sure Apple isn't much more safe or secure. But the point is... We meet and we discuss. I don't know why anybody would be eavesdropping on church relations. But anyway, we switched because of her brothers. Every Monday at 1, we meet and we talk about she's designed all of our brochures, all of our folders, all of our cards, all of our invitations, all of our booklets, all of our graphics, all of our design. She's done it all, and she's worth every penny that we pay and more. Right, Jenneth? Now's your chance. (coughs) Yes, yes. Uh, we are desperately trying to get her to move. I'd love if all of them moved down there, but down here. But uh, we would desperately. We're trying to figure out a way for Jenneth to move down here. Uh, she is just a great joy. Every Monday that we meet, it's just a smile. Just all right, I can do that. And she probably hangs up and like that is the craziest request I ever got. Right through this little box on. Anyway. It is good to have them here with us. I hope you will make them feel welcome. They're going to come over for lunch. It was funny because Deanna was messaging Jessica yesterday. Said, we're coming down for Thanksgiving. Oh, that's fantastic. We're going to be there on Sunday. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll look forward to next Sunday having you for lunch. And Deanna goes, it's this Sunday. (laughs) Jessica said, and we'll have you for lunch. So she came to early church so she could make a ham today. Uh, Anyway, we're looking forward very much to them being over. Just a wonderful family. Deanna is a Kentucky native by birth, I think, right? Uh, she's a northern Kentucky girl, so it's always good to have some Kentuckians back home here in the Commonwealth. We've been looking at stewardship principles over the last three weeks, and we will look at this evening as well as we look at our church budget. Hope you can come back out for that. But we set early in the series the biblical order of money. And we noted that if you study the Word of God, the biblical order of money is that you must earn it, You must first then give it back to the Lord. You must save it. You must spend it wisely. That's what we'll be looking at today. And then this evening, we're going to look at more broadly sharing that which God has given to us. I remind us before we get to 2 Kings chapter 4 that Luke 16 and verse 11 says this, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, 
Who will commit to your trust the true riches? In this verse, God is telling us, Jesus is speaking, and he's saying to us, how you handle your finances matters to God, because finances are insignificant to him. But they are a testimony of what we believe about him. How we handle our resources is important. In our preaching so far, we have covered the topic of earning. In that message on earnings, we noted that it is necessary because of the fall that work now includes sweat. So the title of that message was Sweat in the Fallen World. We noted that our sweat is honest work, it is hard work, and ultimately God honors that work that we do. We then examined the importance last Sunday of savings. We noted that there is a pathway to savings, and then there is a principle, that is P-A-L, that is the amount or sum that we save, should be put to good use. And the Bible teaches us wonderful principles of how we put saved income, saved earnings to good use. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes says that we cast our bread upon the waters seven, yea, eight. We're putting it in a diversified, spread out way. In other words, we are diligent with what God has given to us. That's the Bible understanding. It's the Bible teaching. This leads us this morning to the principle of spending. Now, don't raise your hand, but if this is your first Sunday with us, you're welcome. Just because you came to church, I'm talking about your money, right? That's all Baptist preachers do every time they get in the pulpit. It just so happens you came on the wrong Sunday, but we're glad you're here. I hope you enjoy your time here with us today. Proverbs 21 and verse 20 says this, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll go here to our passage in 2 Kings 4, and we'll see a family that was in great distress because they spent everything up, and all they had left was a wee bit of oil. Father, help us, I pray, as we turn our hearts now to the Word of God. I am very aware this morning that the topic I'm preaching is very practical, which means it's going to be very personal. That's okay. There may be folks in here this morning who have practiced excellent stewardship principles. They have, by the sweat of their brow, earned the income necessary and by diligence saved that which is appropriate and necessary. And therefore, they can spend accordingly. But I'm also aware that likely within our midst, there are those who have spent beyond their means. Father, today as we look at philosophy, that is life guidance, principles that guide our everyday living. As we look at this philosophy of how we go about spending what you've given to us, may we understand the order and the hierarchy, the importance of it. But we also understand the danger of not getting control of our finances. Bless us, I pray, this morning as we look at these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you spend your hard-earned money on? Stop and just start the service that way. Some of you are thinking the car that's sitting out in the parking lot. (laughs) Yeah, that bad boy's costing me a lot of money, you're thinking right now. Some of you might be thinking about your mortgage and the house payment that you have. 
Some of you might be thinking about the student loans or the debt that you're paying off, the college bills that you racked up. There's others of us that might be thinking about the things that we spend that are necessary in life. Things that are requirements, things that have come upon us. Perhaps some in here are thinking about the calamities that have set in. And I asked the question this morning, is there guidance for us in the Word of God of how we ought to live and how we ought to spend the resources that God has given to us? The answer is most definitely yes. The proverb that we opened with says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. If we are wise with what God gives us, then there will be abundance and excess. There will be opportunity that we can use that which we have earned. But far too many of us, I think, today live like the foolish man. Well, here in 2 Kings chapter 4, we find such a man. And he's a good man. He's a son of the prophets. He's living within the realm of those prophets and Elisha comes upon him. The Bible says this beginning in verse 1. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. Let's pause for a second. This guy's off to a good start. He's like all of us here on a Sunday morning. Hey, look, I respect God. I understand who God is. I put value on who he is. I put a high placement of him in my life. Okay, if you do, then there's a way you live. We see the Bible goes on. And the creditors come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. It seems like this man had accrued a debt that was now unable to be paid. He was living beyond what he was able to pay, even in his death. And the Bible says that the creditors have come. And Elisha said unto her, what shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, thy handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. I got a little bit of oil, man. By the way, the proverb said what? Treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Interesting. Then he said, go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons. And thou shalt pour out into all those vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went forth from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. I I get the idea that she's like, all right, Joey, give me another one. Mom, that's all of them. And he said unto her, there's not a vessel more. And the oil stayed, or it stopped flowing. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children any way you want. Go live in debt again. What does it say? Look in your Bible. Live of the rest. In other words, live responsibly off of the income you gained. In other words, there's a lesson for the woman and her children in this. Your husband did not live this way. You must live this way. This is God's provision for you. Oh, there's a great lesson for us this morning on the principle of spending within stewardship. I do wonder how many Christians here this morning are this poor man who stacked up creditors without any way for him or his family to pay off or satisfy any of those debts. I found a couple charts. Good old Dave. Dave Ramsey. He's got solutions for everything. They're not a bad process of solutions, by the way, if you're in trouble. These are some of the things that I found on their website, specifically living within 
the concept of money and paychecks and earnings and income and the expenses that we live by day by day. The average non-mortgage debt per person by age. Now, wouldn't you think that the older we get, the smarter we would get with debt? Oh, but statistically, that's not what we find. Some of the 18 to 29 year olds in here this morning are going like this. I'm doing all right. Look at me, man. I'm only $11,000 in debt. By the way, if you're bragging about only being $11,000 in debt, you have a problem. But your problem is not as bad as the 30 to 39-year-olds. And their problem is not as bad as the 40 to 49-year-olds. Now, I will admit, I'm in that 40 to 49-year-old category. And a lot of us are like, yeah, but your kids aren't in school, man. You don't even have kids. You're not even married yet. Are there excuses? No. We just come up with reasons that we think are good excuses. There's no excuse for this. 50 to 59, it's 21,000. 60 to 69, it's 15,000. And 70 plus, it's $9,000 per person by age in average non-mortgage debt. Here's what you can take from the first slide of these statistics this morning. This message is good for all of us. From the 18-year-olds to the 7-year-olds. If you are under 18 in here this morning, you can legitimately say, I'm turning my brain off. I'll check back in at the invitation. All right? You probably don't have debt, but I would warn you if you're younger than that, don't take on any debt. Look at the next slide. Average American debt per household. Now, the first line is great. Any debt. We average $158,000 in average household debt. Now, he gives some other categories there, group. Credit card debt is 14000 Student loan is 58000 Auto loans is 31000 And if you have a mortgage in here, then yours is around $202,000. And the point that they make is that first number, $158,000, that group of people is all of us, those that have mortgages raise the average, those that don't have mortgages probably lower the average, but all of us together have $158,000 as a household. That is disastrous. Now, if you have a mortgage, there's such things as good debt, and many of the economists and financial individuals call it toxic debt. Certainly, a mortgage is much less toxic to you, damaging to you, than having a credit card debt that is high, because they're getting you at 21%, whereas the mortgage companies are getting you at about 7% right now. Jessica and I were laughing the other day just because we built our house in 2020, and when we closed on our loan in January of 21, we got a mortgage rate of 2.35%. I told her, I said, baby, we are not paying this house off until we have to. But when we can, we will. Because that's the best kind of debt. It's still not good debt, but boy, it's the best kind. Because it's wee. It's tiny. It's little. Look at the next one. The next slide. This is just credit card debt. And look at the age spread. The 70-plus-year-olds are carrying $107 billion in credit card debt annually. Yikes! But it's not as bad as the 50 to 59-year-olds. In other words, this is the most damaging debt to you. What does this picture tell you? It tells me that we have a spending problem. I want it, so I'm going to go get it. It tells me that as a culture and as a country, and even as Christians, we have not learned to control ourselves by biblical principles of finance. 
Stewardship principles, my friend, matter. The way out of this debt is to follow God's biblical counsel on money and finances. Elisha introduced the solution to this woman. And the solution here in 2 Kings chapter 4 was trusting God and for her to take control of her finances. He didn't just say, you know what? I'm going to magically take care of this. Poof, you got a denarii, right? Here's your money. Here's a shekel. Go throw it at the people that you owe money to. No, he said, listen, here's the solution. Go out and find the pots, bring them back, take the little provision that you do have and begin to apply it to what the problem is and you will resolve the problem. Yes, through God's help, but through conviction, work and and, and the sweat of your brow, you will solve the problem. Can I tell you this morning, I'm Elisha and if you're in these same problems, you are this woman. If you've got a spending problem, it's high time you wake up and realize you've got to take care of it. It's not another man's problem. How you handle the money that God has entrusted to you says a lot about your faith in Him and your obedience to His Word. I heard a funny story of old about money that is very tantalizing, meaning money just is compelling to us. It makes us act weird. There was a wealthy man that lay on his deathbed, and he spoke to three of his best friends, a doctor, a professor, and a preacher. And he said to him, I'm going to prove all of them wrong. I'm going to take my money with me. I'm going to give each of you guys $100,000 in an envelope. And when I die, before they close my casket, I want each of you to take that $100,000 and put it in with me. Sure enough, the man died. At his funeral, the three friends each stopped by the open casket and put an envelope in. Later that day, as they were reminiscing about his life and talking about the event that just took place, the doctor spoke up and said, guys, I got to get this off my chest. We all know that the money was not going to do any good right there in the ground with the man. The hospital is completing a new children's wing, so I took $50,000 of the cash and gave it to that cause. The other $50,000 I put in with him. You're right, there really was no reason to put the money in, the professor said, in the ground. So I also did the same. I took $70,000 and I gave it to the university library. They both then looked expectantly at the preacher and he said, I'm ashamed of both of you jerks. Our friend, he trusted us. You know what I did this morning? I wrote that man a $100,000 check and I put it in the envelope and put it in with him. Some of you don't even know what checks are. For the younger kids, it's like throwing your debit card in there. He can't push the pin. Money is alluring. It's tempting. God cares about the way you spend your money. Don't be those guys. Everything after earning an income falls into what we categorize as expenditures. Finances really comes down or boils down to income versus expenses. If the guys that have served as finance pastors in this place over the years have taught me anything, that's as simple as it is. My comment to them, by the way, is it's just money. And their answer is yes, it's income versus expenses, pastor. Good. If you've collected a paycheck, you know that taxes come off the top. If you have employer health insurance, it usually comes out pre-tax. Social security insurance has come out before you see your paycheck. These are all expenses that are taken out, but they're still expenditures nonetheless. It's always funny to watch that young kid get their first paycheck. They do the math about their hourly salary, and they usually will say something like this, Hey, they're ripping me off! And their parent usually walks in and says, Welcome to the world. Yeah, 
you're being ripped off. What I want to talk about this morning are three philosophies, and really a hierarchy in a philosophical approach to what you spend. Now, you can take solace this morning. I am not going to tell you how much and what to spend. Hallelujah, Kyle. I am so glad I can stay for the rest of the message. I am going to give to you, though, philosophically, the way you should approach how you spend your money. What your avenues of expenditure should be on. Biblically based as well. We begin at number one with foundational spending. What is foundational spending? What are some of the items that we must spend on in this life? Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 tell us, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. God's priorities should be the order in the sequence of how we use the money He's given to us. All spending starts then, letter A, with the godly reality of faith. What do you mean, Pastor? What does it mean, the godly reality of faith? Well, listen, when you get saved, there is a reality that automatically becomes your reality. It is a divine life. It is a life that sets its affections on things above. It is a life that is no longer lived just in the temporal realm. Though we are in the world, we are no longer of the world. And so if that is true in all of the areas of our life when it comes to sanctification, it also comes into the area of our personal finances. So the first reality is that we give to the Lord through His church. Now, I told you, I knew you would get there. I mean, it took you 80 minutes of preaching last two Sundays and today another 15, and you finally did it. I did, and I will get off of it as soon as you'll let me. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2 says this. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. In other words, what was good for the Galatian church is good for the Corinthian church. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. You should, according to the Apostle Paul, give to your church. The church that you are a member of, you should give there. It is not to the church. It is not to the pastor. It is not even for the betterment of the people. You give to your local church because God has said that's where you give to Him in this age. We once had a family attend our church who said, I haven't given to my church in a long time. This was several years ago. Because I don't like what they do with my money. I don't like the direction the church is going. And so they began attending here at Bluegrass. The conclusion was that they wanted to start giving faithfully here at the church, but they wouldn't become members. Clearly, they were being led by God somewhere else than the church where their membership was, but they had not settled on God leading them here. And by the way, they never stayed here, and that's fine. It was a bit of a hike for them to drive here, and I understood that. The, the fact of this morning is their heart was in the right place. They wanted their God-given income to go for His use and for His glory. That is a good thing. Honor the Lord with thy substance, Solomon wrote. My conclusion with them was, if you are a member at another church, you can't give regularly at this church. Now, when have you heard a Baptist preacher say that? I mean, most of them would just say, hey, listen, the plate's out there. You go ahead and drop it in. I ain't looking. Are you going to live in the moment or are you going to live by principles? Philosophically, you give where you are a member, where your membership is, where you're a church member. 
you lay in store at the church you're a part of. I recognize that in the epistles in the New Testament, there weren't like three or four Baptist churches in Corinth. There was one. But those Corinthians laid in store in their church. I encouraged the family to join and then to give, but I told them in the meantime, they should consider if their church was abusing that giving, a church-based nonprofit out of the area that, that, that could truly use their resources. This family chose a children's home out of state that was run through a church, and they were greatly blessed, and I believe to this day are still giving to that. Praise the Lord. Good. But for us who are here this morning, giving to the church, laying in store on the first day of the week, is a righteous act of faith in which every believer should engage in. God doesn't need your money, but He expects you to realize you should give back to Him because He has graciously given all things to you. God's first design for where you expend or spend your resources is to give back to Him through the only institution that He has established in our age, and that is the local church. Now, I would have you noticed this morning, I haven't said a word about tithe. <gasps> you don't believe in the tithe? We can argue principally from the Bible for a long time about whether the tithe is for the church age or not. Some will cry that it's only an Old Testament teaching. That's true. However, the New Testament teaching isn't less than that. It is more than that. Ah, I think I like the Old Testament again. Okay, good. I do too. They're both in the Bible. I always look at the 10% as just the starting line. Right? If you went to run a race, you would not go and run in a competitive... Well, most of us probably wouldn't go run in a competitive race. But if you went to run in a competitive race, you would not show up with marching boots and an army uniform on. You would show up with track shoes, shorts, and a tank top. And you'd be like, let's go as fast as you can. In other words, you would be prepared for the moment. The 10% tithe, or the tithe as it's called in the Bible, is just the start. Man, that guy's after more than just my 10%. No, I'm just mentioning to you... There is a priority for our faith, and the faith motivates us to give to the Lord through His work. Now let's go secondly to a letter B. You can breathe again. I'm off you giving to the church. Now I'm on to your spending. I'd rather go back and talk about me giving to the church, Pastor. Let me give you a good rule to follow. Now it's seemingly complicated, but it is a good rule. Some of you look at that and go, what is 10, 40, 20, 30? Is that like some coordinates on the map that I need to get to? Are we doing a scavenger hunt here? And let me just break it down very simply. 10% goes to the Lord. 40% goes to the four walls, as some call it. I call them the four pillars. 20% should go to savings or debt reduction. And 30% to living. Now, let me just pause. I do not want a show of hands, but think for a second. Do you have a plan? Do you have a rule for your money, or does your money rule you? Are you telling your money what to do, or is your entire life of earning a penny, or a dollar, or thousands of dollars, has your whole life been, well, I just do what the money says? No, you've got to tell it what to do. That is everywhere found in the Bible. I was joking with Mike Duffy, who used to travel around preaching stewardship evangelism for about 10 years. And he said, Pastor, the problem with messages like this is how many verses can you cram in? Because there's at least 500 verses in the Bible specifically about money and spending. Yeesh. And there's a lot. 
If you have a $4,000 income, I, I do not want to raise a hand, but let's say you make four grand a month. Good for you. $400 should go to the Lord. $1,600 should go to your home, your transportation, your health, and your basic food needs of groceries. Most financiers will tell you that 40, of the 40% margin, only 25% should be on mortgage or rent. That's hard. In the modern day, and you say, well, it's, it's okay here in Kentucky. I can tell you where my sister and brother-in-law live outside of Washington, D.C. you got to make a lot of money because you got a big payment. In our country, inflation is ruining some of these rules, but it means we just got to go get some more work, or we got to be even more diligent with our money. By the way, in the transportation, if you're spending 1000 on that and you only have got $600 left over, you don't have a lot for a car payment. I watched a video. I almost did it for church, but we're going to be right at the time anyway this morning. There was a car dealership in Indiana, and they actually did this as if it was a good thing. They were going around to all of the employees that worked there to try to tell people in the community how good and how normal and how wonderful it is to have a car payment. And they were asking person after person, what's your car payment? And I showed it, I think, to Zach, or maybe I showed it to Edward. It was appalling. These guys were in the, in the shop. Some of these guys are mechanics in the shop. Some of them are the salesmen out front. Some of them own the place. They're like, I got $1,600 a month in a car payment. I'm like, $1,600 a month? The next guy was like, I got 550, I got 395, I got 715, and it was on and on and on. And it's like, come down to see us at whatever dealership. And I thought, man, I would look at that commercial and go, no, thank you. A good rule to follow is 10, 40, 20, 30. The 20% means you put $800 into savings. If you have debt, then you should begin to snowball down that debt. If you don't know what that means, it means you pay off the smallest debt first so that you can accelerate paying off the next smallest debt next and the next and the next and the next until, guess what, the snowball's rolling downhill and you're debt-free. You can come scream here. You can go scream at Dave's place. You can scream wherever you want. But I promise you, when you are out of debt, you will scream because it's joyful. Give you a little hint. Solomon, writing to his beloved in the Song of Solomon, and I know it's a love letter, so don't worry, teenagers, I won't get icky this morning. But in Song of Solomon, he writes a little phrase about love. And by the way, love is an investment. Love is to be given and taken. It's just, a, it's in a sense, in a very real sense, the highest commodity that we trade. It, trade. it is the love that we give and take. But he says this about love in verse 15. He says, take or consider us the foxes. Let, let's think for a second, he says to his beloved, about the foxes. And notice the next phrase that he says. The little foxes that do what? Spoil the vines. Can I tell you what that means? Keep the verse up there. I can tell you what it means. Solomon is looking out, and he sees his vast vineyard. And from the top of the castle, as he's looking down into that valley, he's going, hey, look at that fox. He's eating all the grapes on the vine. Hey, look over there. There's another fox that's eating all the grapes. I mean, the, the stewards or the keepers of the, the, the vineyard keepers, the husbandmen, were out and doing their job. But there's a little fox here and a little fox here and a little fox here. Can I tell you, in your life, it's the little expenses that will end up robbing your budget. It'll cost you the most money. If you don't take control of it, it'll take control of you. The little foxes spoil the vines. He says, for our vines have 
tender grapes. You ought to consider your earnings, you ought to consider your income as a precious thing, a given provision from Almighty God. The final 30% in our rule here says that we have $1,200 to live on. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a moment. It doesn't mean you live high on the hog. But it means within that, you have more, uh, more things that you can do. You have freedom. But the foundational things, all of us have to do those if we're going to be a functioning society. By the way, there's a lot of people in this country that aren't doing the basic things anymore. It's why we have the problem we have. The second category then for us takes us into this concept of what we spend our living on. And that is formational spending. I mean, if there's foundational, there's some basic things that we have to have. We give to the Lord and we put a roof over our head. Having food and raiment, Jesus says, therewith be content. What then is our formational spending? Well, the formational spending includes the costs to make life what you believe God would have it to be for you. Your life is going to look different than my life. That's a wonderful thing. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm glad my life looks different than yours. And, and my, I'm glad mine is different than yours. That's the beauty of a church family and the diversity within it. Proverbs 21 and verse 5 says this, The thoughts of the diligent tend only to what? Plenteousness. But everyone that is hasty only to want. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about your money controlling you or you controlling your money. This is where spending becomes personalized. We should prioritize our spending then on things that improve us or improve our lives or improve the lives of those around us. And we have even with this within formational spending, some basic hierarchies. This is just a philosophy. Notice so far, I haven't really told you how much to spend. I've just given you an example. I don't know your life. I'm not going to take the time to get into 125 or 130 homes and say, all right, you got to spend this penny. All right, Joe, you got to spend this penny. You can do that. You're smart. All of us are. We just have to have a philosophy, a conviction, a guiding principle that we live by. Here's the hierarchy. Letter A, instructional cost. How much should you spend on your learning? Now, some of the senior saints in here are like, man, I am done with that. Hallelujah. You know, my education from third grade through most of my college life cost my parents $200,000. I had to pay for one year of college, but they paid for my private school education, and they paid for most of my college education. That's why when I got kicked out of college and didn't finish and went to work for the government, my dad was so mad at me. He said, now you're paying for that year that... I paid for it. Okay. I had to pay him back for the years that I, I, he, he, had to, that he had paid. I often wonder with my sister and I what my dad could have done with $400,000. I mean, just think. I, I graduated in 98. If he had invested at the bottom of the tech bubble, rode up through the property bubble, and when it burst, rode it back up, that $400,000 over that 25 to 30 years easily would have been seven to $10 million. There's sometimes I wonder if my dad shouldn't have done that. I would have had a much better life. Some of you kids are like, wait, are you saying my parents shouldn't pay for my education? Well, we'll talk about it. Recently, I laughed during the governor's race. Either it was a real farmer, and I hope it was, or they hired somebody to look like a farmer, who said on a commercial, so-and-so wants to take money from our schools and give it to those high-dollar private schools for their kids. I was sitting there with boys because we were watching a football game because they blasted them during the governor's race, and I said, yeah, I do. Because it's dollars of my property tax. Boy, that's 
perfect timing. The sound went out right when I was talking about <laughs> Don't go against them public lobbies. $3,100 of my property tax went to Scott County Schools last year. Yet Jessica and I choose to educate our boys using a private education curriculum at home. Over the past 10 years that I've lived here, $30,000 of my money has gone to a public school system that I have received nothing from, except for some more tax increases and wanting more money. I'm not rich, I'm not mad, but I'm aware that I pay twice to actually educate my kids well. In 2018, U.S. News and World Report's study of school districts in America, Scott County, all of the school districts reported, and they took the, the interview or the information, and here's what they determined. Scott County's total revenue was $112 million, while his expenses were only $99 million. Makes you wonder where the $13 million went. Only $60 million of that was spent on instruction. That's barely 50% of the revenue. The report went on to note that the cost of educating every child in Scott County is $10,000 a student. Now, none of this is me belittling the educators. The educators in the classroom do yeoman's work. I believe very many of them have noble intentions and goals to make a better world and to shape the minds of those young people. Same with the support staff. We have many in our church who have worked or are working in those systems. It is not necessarily the system. I'm simply drawing our attention philosophically. Instructional costs come at a high price tag. And we need to understand what they are. I keep wondering each year why I can educate each of my children for 2000 bucks, And they score in the top 98 percentile. They're probably like their mother. They're smart, not like their father. But the point is, they can score so high on all the academic testing. And yet, at $10,000, the public school systems average in, the, in Scott County in the 24th percentile, 24% range out of 100. Oof. That's not because we're dumb. Our church is filled up with great kids that go to our public school. I'm simply making a note of it. We have to understand philosophically, we're spending our money on this stuff. It should matter to us. For young families, it's certainly cause to think about the education for your kids. But you have to think about the cost of educating them. Education from the Bible, by the way, has never been a public venture. It was always private responsibility in the home, according to Deuteronomy 6. In the early days of our country, the one-room schoolhouse followed this model. They taught the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic. But it was the family, especially the mom, who taught the subject fully at home. Let me go on to colleges and universities. I would caution parents that the need for a four-year degree is becoming less and less important. I'm not saying it's not important. It's becoming less important. I do not want a brain surgeon working on me and said, I got this certificate online. Right? So we can all understand that we're not just, oh, we, we talk so much and we're just this camp or that camp. I, I certainly understand the value. I think teachers should go to school. I, I think there's a good number of programs and degree tracks where you ought to go to school. But college does not have to be for everyone because colleges are ruining your kids. There are certainly reasons for getting a four-year degree, but it's not necessary for success. Nor, parents, is it wise to send your kid to an institution that hates your values. 
Why give a God-hating institution $300,000 over four years to have your kids come back home and hate you and everything you stand for? Why do it? Wisdom in formational spending on instructional costs is needed. I remind you what Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 2 and in verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Lies that are empty. After the tradition, well, this is just what everybody does. After the rudiments, or this is how the world works, man. After the rudiments of the world. And not after who? Christ. Well, there's some great colleges and universities out there that will teach your children academically excellence. Academic excellence, there you go. And will also teach them the right worldview. The second category in our philosophy goes from instructional costs to informational costs. If I could, I would have taken the next two and put them into one category, but I think they're two. These are what I call the functional arts and the fine arts. Informational costs are things that teach you or train you in areas that benefit your mind and growth. After the first service, one of the families in here came up to me and they said, Pastor, Dale and Nora Oliver, they came up and they said, Pastor, in that informational section, you should add dogs and cats. And I think that's actually pretty good because my dog, Sam, over 15 years has taught me a lot. Right now he's teaching me at age 15, almost 16, that getting old ain't fun, right? But the point is, there's a lot of things through the years that our dogs and our cats, our animals teach us. That's not what I put in my notes, but I thought I'd throw it in because Dale and Nora thought it was a great idea. And there you go. It can be this idea of informational cost in trades, in logic, in reasoning, and in social clubs. It's a good thing for us to expend some of our money and resources to be out and in the community. So often Christians and, Christians and churches like ours... We become insular. We can only spend it in here. Well, God's given you resources that aren't only going to be spent here. You need to use them carefully, informed, and informing others out in the world. Retirement seems to be a wonderful thing for this, by the way. My parents are the example of it. Since retiring from the government after 40 years and being a weekend warrior for 27 of those as a part-time job in the Army, my dad has come back home to Kentucky and he's learned to farm and he's become quite good at it. He's learned to become a beekeeper and he's kind of okay at that. He keeps losing hive after hive after hive. He keeps saying to me, Kyle, this is expensive, but man, he's part of the bee club and he knows all the beekeepers in Lexington. He knows all the beekeepers around here, right? But he keeps killing his hives and he never tells the beekeepers that. But the point is, he's taken to a community of that. He's informing himself at this stage of life. He's also learned how to build storage buildings. In the first service, he was here, so I had to be careful. In this service, I can just talk freely because he's not here and it's not being recorded, I'm sure. He's not that great at building the storage buildings. Like Jessica has told me, if you've got to go in and get a thing, come running out quick. He's learned how to build them, though. So far, they've held up. My mom has joined ladies' clubs. She's joined or participated in the Baby Saving Pregnancy Center that's here in town, among many other things. These things that they engage in cost them money. They're not free. And if your money is spent only on entertainment and an amusement, if it's only spent in riotous living, if it's only spent on wasteful things, and you don't allocate in, in a philosophical way that your money should be put to good use, you'll never be able to do those things. You'll just sit around and say, I wish I could do that. Well, you can. 
just got to make your money work with you and for you. A third category I put here is inspirational costs. The informational costs of functional arts leads us to further deeper things, and that is inspirational costs. You know, in the Bible, Moses sang, David sang, Asaph played, the sons of Korah sang. We find over and over again the things that are inspirational, the things that are aspirational, that we want to be, to be better than ourselves. I noted just the other day that in Spain, I think it was, there was an artist who was paid $1.5 million for an art exhibit. He went into the art exhibit or into the art hall or the museum, and he hung on the wall a blank picture, and he stood back and stood for two hours. And they paid him a million and a half dollars for that. And when I read the article, I thought, what has happened to us? Mankind has lost their mind. We lost our mind in the garden, I will grant you that. But what happened to the classic pieces of art? When I talk about inspirational things, as parents, especially as you spend your money, you ought to look at things like music and drawing and painting and poetry and literature for your kids. We spend a lot of money on amusement, but we spend very little of our money on things upon which we can actually muse or think about. Let me just make an aside, and I don't mean to offend but I did this because my favorite quarterback broke his arm this week. How many people make it to the NFL from high school football? Does anybody know? The answer is this. Every year there's one million high school football players for that year. Of those one million graduating high school seniors, 73,000 of them will make a Division I college team. And of those 73,000, only 254 of those will be on an NFL team. Your chance each year of becoming an NFL player is 0.02%. Did you know that kids in the STEM program become doctors and engineers at a rate of 5 to 10%? You're much more likely if you apply yourself in the mechanical sciences, in the fine arts, in the trades of life to be successful and to say, I want to be a basketball player. That's hard. I remember as a kid, I was good at soccer. But you know what I don't use? I don't use those skills anymore. I'm glad that my parents invested in some of the things that I could do. But I'm not standing around dribbling a soccer ball to impress you. I'll tell you what I do use. I use my debate skills. I use the choir and music that my mom forced me into when I was a kid. She put me into some inspirational things. She made me take piano lessons until the piano teacher said, you know what, Pat, Kyle may not be cut out for this. (laughs) Philosophically, we've lost sight of what's important. We don't do the inspirational or informational or instructional things anymore because we say at the end of the day, we just don't have money for that, Pastor. God, I just didn't plan well. I got so excited, I got ahead of my notes. It leads us to our final, and that is interesting costs. There's some things of interest that you can do. I don't want to be like Pastor Party Pooper up here, okay? That's a terrible name anyway. But I don't want to be that guy. My job often is to be Elisha. You got a real problem, lady. But I'll give you a real solution. But if you don't go get pots, you're not going to solve the problem. That's basically what I'm doing today. 
is reminding us of the hierarchy and importance. Let's talk about sports. They dominate our world today. I often wonder, the gambling has become so big because there's so many people that are highly invested at all levels in athletics. I I played soccer. I played on travel teams. I've traveled the country. I've even traveled the world playing on junior soccer teams when I was a kid. I was quite good. I can impress my kids. I can juggle the ball. I can hit it on my knees. I can still flick it up and catch it on the back of my neck and flick it off and do all this. I don't do that up here. At 47, nobody cares that I can do that. I mean, some of you are nominally impressed and said, okay, next Sunday, let's try. But the reality is, it's not done anything for me at 47. The other things have. Sports leagues, I believe, have their place. But it isn't at the top of your budget. But pastor, my kid's going to be the next great athlete. No, he's not. I don't mean that hateful. Even if your child is, praise the Lord, think of the world that they will be entering. It's not wholesome. It's filled with hedonism. I do believe athletics are important for a young child and one that's growing into their teen years. They're great for team building. They're great for leadership development. They're great for responsibility. They're good for interpersonal skills. They teach the child to learn with both, learn uh, how to handle both success and failure. You can tell I used to be a high school coach. I love athletics. I'm not against athletics. I'm simply saying in the expenditures of life, we should not be putting that interest cost above instructional cost, above informational cost, above inspirational cost. It comes in its proper place. It is an entertainment. It is an amusement. Did hunting season end? Uh Uh-oh. I had a second A after athletics, and that is activities. And the first one I put in here is hunting, fishing, and you can tell that I don't do a lot of activities, bowling. (laughs) Any bowlers in here? Anyone? My My mom and dad, I grew up in a bowling alley down in Frankfurt, by the way. Most of you don't know that. They were in a bowling league and a racquetball league, two nights a week, one, one on each night. And I, my sister and I grew up in a bowling alley. It's the first place I got bit by a dog. Not the only place I got bit by a dog. It was the first place I got bit by a dog. How much money do you spend on your hunting gear, guys? Well, I've got to have my blind. I've got to have my tree stand. I've got to have my gun. I've got to have my long gun. I've got to have my short gun. I've got to have my emergency gun. I've got to have my knife to gut it. I've got to have a big truck to haul it. My favorite, by the way, is Nick. Are they here this morning? They might be out sick. Nick stuffed a deer in the back of that RAV4 that they had. <laughs> I've never seen somebody kill a deer and stuff it in the back of a RAV4, and he sent me a picture of it. Anyway, it was awesome. But, man, we got to spend on it. Same thing on fishing. I took Luke. Luke wants to fish. And Brother Harry and Miss Karen, their house goes down to a creek, and they have offered over and again for us to come over and fish at their creek. I have to admit, I went into Rural King and I looked down the aisle and I'm like, good grief. There's like a fishing pole for everything. There's like right-handed firm grip and I wanted to get the right-handed wimpy grip, right? I didn't know what, what does that mean? It's got lures and it's got hooks and it's got lines. You got a flywheel and a non-wheel and a somebody else wheel. I don't know. 
But I realized very quickly, I was not going to go into Rural King and walk out with a $9 fishing pole. I was going to walk out with $99 worth of fishing gear. And I thought, man, I wasn't in the budget. It is not a problem to invest, spend, and use your money on interest. The problem is when philosophically they take a higher priority than the important things of life. Instruction, information, inspiration, and the things that interest us. That is the pattern for healthy spending. And it leads us to our final thought, and I'm just a bit long, so I'll be quick. And that is fun spending. Now, some of you have been waiting for me to get to this. Man, that's what I want to talk about. What can I do with my money? If you have money, you can do whatever you want with it. That's what makes it fun. Alec and Audrey were at our house yesterday about, uh, with uh, marriage, pre-marriage counseling because they're getting married next summer. Um, Chase and Abigail are going through about the same lesson. And the next one we do with them in pre-marriage is on finances. And each of those couples and all the others that have got married, we've told every couple what we want to do, Jessica and I, what we want to do when we retire. If you're in here and you know what we want to do with our fund money when we retire, what is it? RV. And every time I talk to somebody that owns an RV, they said, you better have a lot of money if you want an RV. So all Jessica and I have determined at 47 years of age is that we're not going to have a lot of fun in retirement, right? That's all I know. The point is, is that when we get there, if we've done our due diligence and we've planned and prepared for that, we can. The problem for us as spenders is that we want all of the fun right now. And the Bible says, no, it's just not the way it works. Long diligence. When you have saved and spent wisely, then you may spend the excess according to your desires. Proverbs 3 and verse 10, I remind you again, says, So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Do you know what you need to do with new wine? You need to drink it. You need to give it. You need to share it. You need to sell it. You can do whatever you want with it because you got plenty of it. That's the point. When we've honored the Lord with our substance, meaning we have followed his order of operations for our money, then we should have extra to use, the Bible teaches. The problems come when we want to spend fun money that really isn't free money to spend at that time. Frugal living leads to fun spending, I often tell people. Frivolous spending will lead to this, forever working. You ever met that person? Man, if I, I just, if I could get out of this debt, well, I'm going to spend like there's no tomorrow. And guess what happens? They wake up and there's tomorrow. They got to work. Proverbs 21 and verse 17 tells us about that frivolous spending soul. He that loveth pleasure shall be a what? Poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. In other words, you just keep consuming it. You just keep taking it in. You don't set aside. You don't save. The problem is that so many spend for pleasure before they give, before they save, before they spend on the truly important things in life. Thus, there is no fun for them because they're constantly living in a cycle of debt. In closing, Jesus says this in Matthew 6 and verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt 
where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not, or he effectively is saying cannot, break through or steal. For where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. The next verse is very interesting because it's not stuck in there by abstract. It's stuck in there with context. The light of the body is the eye. By the way, what is it that always makes us spend? I saw what Susie had, and I had to have it. I had to keep up with the Joneses because my name is Jones after all. He says the light of the body is the eye. That's what makes us alive. That's what gives us life. I have preached many a funeral. And I can promise you, when one passes from this world to heaven, that mortal body has no life in the eyes. Jesus is saying here, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, when he says single here, he means pure or focused. Thy whole body shall be full of light. The problem is we're so unfocused as Christians in many areas of expenses. A serious look at what you spend your money on will tell you both what and who you love. Father, help us as we close our thoughts today.